In the year 1958 of our era, the state of Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, convened a Bible study group at his home. Now, I myself have convened several Bible study groups over the years, and while I don't want to put down the caliber of my friends and family, let's just admit that Ben-Gurion's study group was probably a bit more illustrious than mine. Israel's leading political officials, military officers, archaeologists, and biblical scholars gathered to discuss and debate a biblical framework that would be suitable for Israel's 10th anniversary as an independent Jewish state. The biblical scholar Rachel Haverach writes that, Through the study group, Ben-Gurion hoped to promote Israeli national unity and to foster a collective identity based on biblical paradigms. It wasn't the religious elements that appealed to the Zionist movement. It was the idea of the Bible as the ancient tie that binds the Jewish people together and helped them place themselves in their new state in the long continuum of Jewish history. Ben-Gurion wasn't the first one to come up with this idea. In 1952, the New York Times' Tel Aviv correspondent, Dana Adams Schmidt, wrote that, "...rarely have a people been so conscious of an expressive past as the Israelis. Biblical history and prophecy explain and give meaning to their presence today as an independent nation in Palestine. From biblical accounts, historical annals, and archaeological research, the Israelis derive not only spiritual inspiration, but physical guidance for charting the future of their fledgling country. Rachel Haverlock writes that in the search for a modern unifying theme linked to the biblical account, Ben-Gurion settled on the book of Joshua, the fifth book of the Hebrew Bible, which tells the story of the Israelite conquest of the land of Canaan after their exodus from Egypt. She writes that the Prime Minister saw the biblical war narrative as constituting an ideal basis for a unifying myth of national identity. Ben-Gurion saw parallels between the recent military accomplishments of Israel's army and its ancient antecedents in a way that both anticipated and justified modern Israel's destiny. Joshua, in Ben-Gurion's view, united a disparate group of people into a national collective for a single national purpose all under, not coincidentally, a single charismatic leader. Ben-Gurion argued that both Joshua's War of Conquest and Israel's War of Independence brought together Jews from various backgrounds into a collective whole. Both wars also seemed to serve the purpose of distancing the Jews from other peoples, the Canaanites, in Joshua's case, and the Arabs, in modern Israel's. Rachel Haverlock writes that Ben-Gurion framed the history of the modern state in terms of biblical narrative and defined exodus, conquest, and settlement as events of the present. Then he used this mythicized Israeli present to interpret scripture. In other words, Joshua explains modern Israel, and modern Israel can explain Joshua. The problem with all this is that, for one thing, Ben-Gurion's biblical analysis wasn't very good. Joshua is a complex book. It doesn't fit neatly into a paradigm that can offer a nicely packaged metaphor for the modern state of Israel. While the first half of Joshua is all about the bloody conquest of the native peoples, the second half concerns the Israelites living with and amongst the very people it was said to have just eradicated. Both stories, of course, can't be true. Ben-Gurion's analysis left out that second part of the story ignoring important ideas about the social complexity of the demographic landscape in the land of Canaan. As we discussed earlier in this podcast season, historians cast doubt on the story of the Joshua Conquest as told in the Hebrew Bible. 
The idea of a ruthless military conquest of Canaan is unlikely to have been the true history of the Joshua era as described in the Bible. More likely is a gradual settlement, in which over generations these new Israelite people merged with and displaced the Canaanites. In the process, the Israelites lived with and amongst a wide variety of people in the region, perhaps in some cases as foes, per the first half of the Joshua story, but no doubt in many cases as neighbors, per the second half. To accept this history is to pose an historical question of just who these Israelites were and where they came from, and ultimately, how they ended up as Jews. So we're wrapping up season five here today on the first thousand years or so of Jewish history. It's been a ride for sure. I gotta say, I'll be sorry to leave the ancient history stuff behind, at least for now. As always, I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to the 130th episode of Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Back in the year 1208 BCE, the Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah became, as far as we know, the very first person to mention the name Israel in writing. He probably didn't realize that the name he was carving into stone would leave an ambiguity that would persist through the ages. Is Israel a people or a place? What does it mean to be a people called Israel? What, exactly, might the boundaries of the territory of Israel be, and who gets to live inside them? The hieroglyphic symbols on the Merneptah stele suggest a people, rather than a defined territory, but not all scholars agree. Is Israel today a nation-state, like the one on the map, or the collective name of people of the Jewish faith, or the culture of Judaism, or an ideal of values and ethics to be striven for? To ponder answers to these questions is to consider the entire history of Judaism and present-day notions of identity, nationhood, religious observance, and our collective and individual place. Now, one way to think about all this is through a term I haven't mentioned much this season. The word Ivri, which in English is Hebrew. In the 14th chapter of the first book of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 14, we come upon a tale of kidnap and rescue. Abraham's nephew, a man named Lot, is taken captive by a group of invaders. We then encounter this term Hebrew for the first time. A fugitive brought the news to Abram the Hebrew, who was dwelling at the terebinths of Mamre the Amorite, kinsmen of Eshkol and Aner, these being Abram's allies. A terebinth is a type of tree and the Amorites were a people living around the land of Canaan. Upon hearing this news, Abraham raises an army of 318 men who pursue Lot's captors as far as Damascus, defeat them, rescue Lot, and bring him and his possessions home. As this is the first use of this brand new term, Hebrew, we must ask what it means and why it's used here in this context. Now, we don't know when in history the word Ivri Hebrew was first used by the Israelites to describe themselves, whether it came from the ancient past or was a more recent invention. Either way, why did the biblical writers introduce the word here? The scholar James Diamond pulls out two distinctions from this short passage in Genesis. 
The first is that while we have already met Abraham two chapters earlier and read about his family lineage there, this is the first time that he's been labeled with a particular ethnic marker, that of Hebrew. The fact that he then raised an army to go after Lot, says Diamond, anchors Abraham in a group forged by an ancestral bond powerful enough to evoke self-sacrifice to preserve its integrity. In other words, clearly both Abraham and Lot belong to this distinct ethnicity, which comes with a commitment to look out for another. James Diamond says that the second distinction is that the same sentence describes Abraham as living with a group of Amorites, who are described as his allies. And actually, says Diamond, the word ally here is better translated as co-covenanters. These Amorites are clearly not themselves Hebrews. What this tells us, says Diamond, is that preserving a distinctly Jewish character does not necessarily undermine an Ivriz, a Hebrew's, integration into the dominant surrounding community. In other words, even though Abraham is of a separate ethnic identity from the majority culture, he's able to dwell with them not just peacefully, but in such close cooperation that they support his rescue effort of Lot. What the Bible presents here, says Diamond, is an ideal model of Jewish integration. Abraham kept his distinct ethnic identity. He didn't assimilate into the majority. And yet that separateness didn't stop him from having close alliances with those around him. James Diamond writes that one can take pride in being a member of a specific covenantal community bound together by religion and ethnicity, and yet still be a loyal member of a larger political community bound by citizenship and residence. Now at the end of the day, and I'm sorry to be a spoil sport, but there's no strict definition of the term Hebrew. Its origin is too far in the past for us to locate an original meaning. The Hebrew Bible uses the term more than 30 times, often synonymous with Israelite. But it seems clear that Hebrew denotes a group of people who are in some ways separate from the majority. In some cases, a separate ethnicity, in others perhaps a separate socioeconomic class, in others a separate political entity, a separate nation. As a matter of origin then, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, they are separate. They constitute a particular and distinct group of people. And they also, as we know, had their own particular God. When the Israelites adopted an austere desert God from an obscure corner of the Near East, they universalized him. They took this god, Yahweh, who may have come from the region of Midian, and merged him with the Canaanite high god, El. The word Israel is a combination of two words, Isra, which may mean to struggle, and El, that Canaanite god. Israel is translated as someone who wrestles with God. And yet although Yahweh served as the national god of the people of Israel, they ultimately imagined him as the singular god for the whole world. In their creation myth, written after the Babylonian exile ended around 520 BCE, their god created not the Israelites, but all of humanity. Indeed, all of the universe. And in one of the first morality plays of the biblical account, the people attempt to build a monument to their conformed and homogenized culture. The Tower of Babel is rejected by this universalizing god, 
who insists instead on diversity as the hallmark of his world. In this way, the Israelites moved from their earlier religious practices to the monotheism recognized by so many of us today. For most of their history, the Israelites practiced henotheism, or monolatry. Both terms speak to the idea that while we may worship only one god, we don't deny that there are other gods. But during the Babylonian exile, this position proved untenable. For if Yahweh was simply the national god of Israel, then surely he too was destroyed along with his home, the temple in Jerusalem, in the year 586 BCE. By making him singular, however, ultimately unknowable and indescribable, what the great 20th century philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel termed ineffable, the Israelites fashioned a new way of religious and cultural practice that turned them into the Jews we have today. The point is that the Israelites understood themselves to have a particular relationship with God, the covenant. In exchange for securing God's blessing, the people of Israel were obligated to keep to God. It was through this covenant that the Israelites understood and explained their history. And where the story of creation was a universal one for all humanity, the story of the covenant was particular to the Jewish people. It was grounded in the great meeting between them and God at the foot of Mount Sinai, when God bestowed on the people of Israel a set of laws, commandments, for them to govern themselves, their community, and their relationship to the divine. It was this experience at Sinai that made them into a nation of people, a nation of Israel. To be an Israelite, then, was to have been present at Mount Sinai to receive the law, which, in effect, meant that an Israelite was someone who worshipped Yahweh. This notion probably defined the Israelites for centuries, from their earliest beginnings up through the Babylonian exile. We know that the Israelites emerged in the land of Canaan in the distant past, sometime at least before Pharaoh Merneptah wrote of them in the year 1208 BCE. It was an era of great movement throughout the Near East and its neighborhood, from what is today Georgia and Armenia and the Caucasus, down through Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon, and into Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. It's unlikely that the Israelites were outside conquerors, but instead had their origins amongst the Canaanite peoples, and picked up some outside groups here and there who were moving into the region from elsewhere. Like, perhaps, a group of former slaves from Egypt who told incredible tales about their journey out of bondage, stories which were absorbed by the Israelites and became an essential part of their culture. Unlike the story of Joshua's swift and brutal conquest, the Israelites gradually settled the land of Canaan. They settled into tribes, as described during the era of the Judges, the period before the monarchy when Israel was led by charismatic warriors who rose to the occasion of tribal defense, but had ambitions no further. Eventually, the Israelites clamored for a king, despite the misgivings of various prophets. At their best, the kings of Israel advanced the primacy of Yahweh through the building of a temple in Jerusalem, the centralizing of worship there, and the emphasis on the singular importance of Yahweh and the laws of Sinai. At their worst, the kings turned to idolatry, paganism, tyranny, and even child sacrifice. Of the 42 or so Israelite kings over the centuries, 
The vast majority were of this lot, testifying to the enormous difficulty the Israelites had in actually governing for their idealistic laws and beliefs. Really only four kings, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah, rose to the biblical writers' deep praise. And even then, the authors saw fit to record various sins and imperfections. The Israelites, it seems, liked their kings human. Indeed, there may be a reason for that. The historian Paul Johnson writes that ancient Jewish history is both intensely divine and intensely humanist. History was made by God, operating independently or through man. The Jews were not interested and did not believe in impersonal forces. They were less curious about the physics of creation than any other literate race of antiquity. They turned their back on nature and discounted its manifestations except insofar as they reflected the divine human drama. The notion of vast geographical or economic forces determining history was quite alien to them. The Bible is vibrant because it is entirely about living creatures. And since God, though living, cannot be described or even imagined, the attention is directed relentlessly on man and woman. To be an Israelite, then, was to partake in this vast drama, to be relentlessly human, but in a covenantal relationship with the divine. The Israelite God was a God who acted in history. To be Israelite was to be in the middle of it. Who was an Israelite? Someone who chose to worship Yahweh. Someone who saw themselves as indelibly part of this sacred covenant with its rights and responsibilities, its blessings and its obligations. It was at once a particular distinction, nationally, religiously, and also a culture that could be adopted by, in theory, nearly anyone amongst the proliferation of various peoples in the Near East. That might be one way how the Israelites over time absorbed this group of people over here and that group from over there, mixing and matching their own cultures and ideas with the Israelite one, forming, once again, a nation of people. I wonder, then, if David Ben-Gurion might have found a better model for modern Israel in the story of Abram the Hebrew rather than Joshua the Conqueror. In the story of Hebrew as a distinct and separate ethnicity, yet one that lives closely within the terebinths, the trees, of its neighbors. It's a model in which Abraham the Hebrew is integrated, not assimilated, in which Abraham gets to keep that which is particular, that which distinguishes him from others, yet in a way in which such distinctions don't matter for his acceptance amongst the people with whom he dwells. Of course, that's a model of harmony that didn't really fit the modern Middle East, and certainly not within the Arab reaction to the creation of Israel. But in considering the larger question, as we look back on ancient Jewish history, that is, how did the Jews become Jews, we find that at least some of the biblical writers put forth this very notion, that the Jews were a distinct people, yet could fit comfortably amongst all the people with whom they lived. And yet, as we come towards the first thousand years of Jewish history, we find that this idea would be challenged also by a new wave of history coming from the West. Now, we've identified some key dates for some of the great changes that marked Israelite history. 1208 BCE saw the first mention of the word Israel, then the year 1000, more or less, the reign of King David, followed by his son, King Solomon, which marked the high-water mark of the United Monarchy, when the Israelite kingdom is said to have experienced its golden age, and when a single city, 
Jerusalem, and its temple, began to serve as the focus point of the Israelite and then Jewish religion. Then the year 720 BCE, when the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians, leaving the small state of Judah as the last bid of sovereign Israelite territory. Then 586 BCE, when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, ushering in the era known as the Babylonian Exile, or Babylonian Captivity, which lasted roughly 50 years. As we've seen, the Babylonian experience changed the Israelites so dramatically that when it ended, and they emerged into the Persian era, they were nearly a different set of people with a new and innovative religious and cultural identity, that of monotheism, and what we know as Judaism. It was under Persian toleration that the Israelites codified their religious and cultural laws and practices, writing them down and editing them in a series of books that became the Hebrew Bible. The historian Marvin Goodman writes that, Whatever the genuine origins of the Jewish people, Judaism was a religion rooted in historical memory, real or imagined, and the historical books of the Hebrew Bible, which lay at the core of the religion, gave shape both to Jewish forms of worship, many of which were specifically configured to recall events in this salvation history, and to Jewish understanding of the relationship between man and God. For 200 years, the Jews lived under the Persians, an empire whose relative tolerance afforded great space for the Jewish people to freely worship, practice, and live. And it all might have continued that way, but for the interference of the great movements of history and the decisive events which have a way of altering whole civilizations for all time. It began right around the time that Ezra and Nehemiah returned to Judah from Babylon, taking up the writing of the Torah and reading its contents to the people of Israel. In the year 480, the Persians, under their king Xerxes, met the Greeks in battle at Thermopylae. 300 Greek Spartans under King Leonidas are said to have held off the Persians long enough to weaken Xerxes' mighty army, which was turned back to the east a year later. Thus was Western civilization saved so that it could flourish. And if you want to liven up your next cocktail party of ancient historians, just ask them whether perhaps we all would have been better off today if the Persians had won rather than the Greeks and then the Romans. But instead what happened is that the Greeks began moving east towards Persia, grabbing bits of land here, taking over people there. And wherever they landed, so too did their Greek culture, which began spreading rapidly through the Mediterranean. The Jews by then had their Bible, they had their laws, they had their separate ethnicity and sense of nationhood. But just when all seemed settled, it was about to undergo yet another momentous upheaval, changing yet again the nature of Judaism and what it means to belong to this people of Israel in this place called Israel. For in the year 332 BCE, a Greek conqueror swooped through the Mediterranean with such mighty force that whole empires, including the Persians, fell to his whim. And in his successes, the Jews were forced to once again wrestle with profound questions and crises that challenged their identity. His name was Alexander the Great. And that is a story for another time. Okay, wow. Well, that's a wrap here for season five, the first thousand years or so of Jewish history. 
This has been a long but fascinating ride, taking me about a year at this point, and I gotta say, I'll be sorry to leave this era behind, at least for a while. In another season, we'll pick up where we left off here with the Greek and then the Roman eras of Jewish history. In the meantime, don't worry, there will be a season six. As usual, I'll be taking a few to a bunch of months off to prepare the next topic, which I'll announce down the road. In the meantime, a huge thank you to the wonderful people who have donated so generously to this project. You are not only a validation of the worthiness of this podcast, but are helping me to keep it going. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And be sure to go to the donate page of my website to see your name in print. Or if you haven't yet donated, you definitely can there as well. Just click on the orange button. Any and all amounts are deeply appreciated. But even if you didn't donate and don't plan to, thank you anyway for listening and supporting. Please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get this podcast. And the very best thing you can do is just to tell everyone you know to listen. As always, my website is jewautono.com and my email is jewautonopodcast at gmail.com. Signing off now for a few months, but I will be back with season six. Talk to you then. Mahitraot. See you later.